The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Psalm 34, beginning at verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Loving God, you provide for our every need. You feed our bodies and our souls, yet we hunger to know and love you more and more. Nourish us with your word today through Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Leisha. Uh, first of all, it's really good to be back. I've, um, last week uh, was gone for a little bit over a week and uh, uh, really grateful to have um, people like David Filson and and Paul Lim uh, be sermon upgrades. Uh, when I'm when I'm out, it's pretty great to have the two smartest people in Nashville. Uh, uh, you know, kind of you know doing this when when I'm not doing this, and and uh, always brings great comfort. But uh, I was actually away, uh, mostly uh, speaking to missionaries uh, from around the world. Uh, who've been sent from the United States to, to different parts of the world, especially major global cities. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of the annual retreat for missionaries through an organization that we're connected to called Mission to the World. And what I wanted to do is just take the opportunity to uh, ask you, after spending that week with them, to pray uh, for those who have been called to be sent. Um, because it's an ex- especially difficult season for missionaries, because um, COVID advancements with 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 COVID uh, as a problem uh, have been less in in certain areas of the world than they have uh, perhaps 
here where we are in terms of vaccination access, crowding, all of the rest. And so imagine yourself as a family of eight moving back in to live with your mom and dad, with your, with your uh, six kids and, and your spouse indefinitely. So you can imagine that if that's been your scenario for the last two and a half years, things can get a little bit discouraging and you can be really eager for those doors to open back up, to go back to be with your people and the communities to which you've been called. And so I, I just want to ask you to add to your prayers as you pray. Those who have said yes to being sent to other lands, um, uh, because it's a real thing. Uh, We've got brothers and sisters who are experiencing discouragement, uh, and they're also deeply committed to the cause of Christ and the gospel in the world. So pray for them uh, in uh, their time of trouble. And speaking of, that'll be, that'll be our transition into Psalm 34, where David, the writer, and the praying person here, is also in a time of trouble. Uh, in fact, the context or the backdrop for this psalm uh, happens to be the lowest point in David's life thus far. He's not the king yet, uh, but he's running from the king, King Saul, uh, because King Saul is jealous of him. Uh, so the backdrop is 1 Samuel 21, and the young Goliath, on behalf of King Saul and on behalf of all the pe- uh, people of Israel, the young David, I'm sorry, has defeated Goliath, when all the odds were against the young David, and yet, yet God gave him the victory over this, this big bully named Goliath, a Philistine, uh, which brought safety and protection and flourishing back to the people of Israel who were in a very vulnerable place. And out of that came a song that was sung by a number of the people of Israel. Saul, and the lyrics include these words, Saul has slain his thousands, And David has slain his tens of thousands. And it says that that, that from that point forward, after hearing those lyrics from the people, King Saul was threatened by this young man who had saved his hide. And it says that from that point forward, Saul kept a jealous eye on the young David. And right now what's going on is Saul and a bunch of hitmen are trying to find David in order to kill him. And so he looks for a city of refuge to hide. And it happens to be uh, in Gath, which also happens to be the place where Goliath was from. And so imagine the, the person who defeated and humiliated your town hero is now vulnerable and found out to be hiding in your town from somebody else. In those days, that meant that David was going to be made a public spectacle through execution. And so what David does to, to hopefully, you know, get, get out of it, his kind of Hail Mary pass, was that he faked like he was insane. And the king of Gath went for it, bought it, and said, you know what, I've got enough crazy people to deal with. I don't need one more. Just send him away. Just get him out of my sight. And so that's what they did. And, and then David, you know, fled for the caves. And so it's in this setting that David says, bless the Lord at all times. Not just sometimes, but bless the Lord at all times. And, and whenever I read that verse, 
it reminds me of uh, early American Christian slaves who came up with a back-and-forth liturgy that I'd like for you to participate with me in right now. Remember, this originated with slaves, your chattel slavery. Repeat after me each time. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. Just let it sink in where those words came from. David, in his distress, is saying similar words, bless the Lord all the time. All the time. His emphasis is less here on being delivered from his circumstances and more, as it says, on being delivered from his fears in the face of scary circumstances. And so this psalm, Psalm 34, is not primarily about how to escape trouble as much as it is about how to steward trouble for the making of stronger, more resilient souls. So C.S. Lewis famously said in Mere Christianity that hell begins with a grumbling mood. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, and if anybody had something to grumble about, it would have been King David, and, and yet this, this kind of prayer, this kind of psalm, serves as something of an, an antibody for the soul against grumbling. And the antidote is the theme of thanksgiving in all things. And so, three, three thoughts today, three points. Number one, if you're a Christian, expect trouble. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. And in fact, your troubles are going to increase, not decrease, if you believe in me and follow me. So, expect trouble. Don't waste the trouble. And then look for Jesus in the trouble. So, so we'll start with expect trouble. David talks about his troubles. He's not pretending that everything's okay. He's not faking fine. Uh, he, like anyone with integrity, is acknowledging the reality and pain of what he's going through. And, and it's all over this prayer. Verse 6, he refers to all his own troubles. Verse 17, the righteous cry for help. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. And then verse 21, there are many who hate the righteous. So, um, so back in our New York City days, we had a friend who was uh, what you call a compliance attorney, and his job was to keep his organization, the large organization that, that he worked for, out of trouble with the law. And at one specific point, uh, his supervisors in the organization pulled him aside into a private room and let him know that the company had, had done some shady things and made some money off the shady things and needed him to be aware of it so that he could provide cover so they could get away with the shady things. And as a follower of Christ who wanted to keep his integrity intact, and that's what, that's what integrity is. It's when you're the same person at work as you are in church. It's the same, you're the same person in a bar as you are when you're praying at home. You're the same person everywhere. Integrity. You're an integrated person instead of a disintegrated person with a disintegrated character. So, so our friend, eager to maintain his integrity out of love and loyalty and gratitude to Christ, 
had to say no to his supervisor. And what happened after that was he was let go from his job. Uh, But not only that, there was a smear campaign that ensued against him throughout the entire bar association in New York. And this made it very difficult for him to find another job and um, to make it more precarious. He's in New York City raising uh, three kids, family of five, depending on, um, on income. And so I remember sitting back, uh, you know, or not back, but behind him in church uh, a Sunday soon after this all happened, and I just said, hey, man, um, I just want you to know I love you, uh, I'm with you, we're here for you, and uh, if you ever want to go uh, to your old office and set the place on fire and need somebody to do that with you, I'll do it. You know, I was just trying to comfort him. I'm going to tell you how he responded to me in a minute. And it was remarkable the way he responded, but we'll get there in a second. But, but this is just one of many examples of, of 2 Corinthians 2.16 played out, where every wholehearted Christian is going to be uh, what, what Corinthians says, the dreadful smell of death and doom to those who are without the Holy Spirit. Like integrity is like the smell of death and doom uh, to those who want to center life around self, project self, project selfish ambition, uh, project, um, you know, strong eat the weak uh, to get ahead, etc. It's going to be a stre- dreadful smell of death and doom to those who are perishing, but to those who are saved, those same people will be a life-giving perfume. So I'll tell you how he was a life-giving perfume to me and many others in a minute. But first, I just want to say this. Um, being a Christian in the South can have a dulling effect on integrity. Because there's all kinds of reasons to be aligned with Christianity and local church and, and all of that in Nashville. In many ways, being a Christian can get you ahead. It can open doors and so on because um, you know, the remnants of, being, of having once been the buckle of the Bible belt are still here. Whereas, whereas in New York, where, you know, we were in our, our old church in New York, where this whole thing happened with, with our compliance attorney friend, uh, there was no social advantage at all to being a Christian in New York City. That's not what opens doors there, it's what closes doors. There are actually magazine articles written about our church, uh, because of certain social views on, on you know, the life choice debate or, or you know, sexuality and marriage debate, um, you know, the, the very clear Christian ethical positions on those such things, uh, you know, we were regarded, churches like ours were regarded as being culturally regressive, backwards, um, you know, wrong, wrong side of history, all of that kind of stuff. There was no social advantage Your Christianity had to be real for you to really want to get in on things like church and living the gospel out. But that doesn't mean that we in Nashville, Tennessee, and the American South are without hope for having character and integrity. But the trick is we have to do the extra soul work and curation, partnering with the Holy Spirit, to ensure that our faith is more real and our Christianity is more real than it is cultural and nominal. Life 
giving perfume. So I'm here to tell you, and I told told the 830 service this as well, I have smelled and gotten the whiff of life-giving perfume over and over and over again in this community at Christ Press. Um, One is that there are people all over the place who have their noses in the Bible, and that affects their lives, and that's beautiful to me. But especially when times of suffering and sorrow come. And one uniquely disproportionate thing that has happened in, in, in our 10 years here is that there have been an unusual number of parents who have buried their children. And each and every time, what, what, what the Apostle Paul calls the power of the gospel becomes a display of sorts as people in the most devastating set of circumstances somehow keep showing up and, 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 and fighting hard to live in hope, which is what the Bible calls an overcomer. An overcomer is just somebody who keeps showing up and who stays with God even when the world becomes a tragic place. You know, if you watch my videos, every now and then I'll do like a pastor video to the church at my desk and over my left shoulder, which will be to your right, there's a sign that says Every, all sad things come untrue. That's a, that's a take on a, a Tolkien quote. And, um, and that was sent to me on the one-year anniversary uh, of, of, of the death of a, of a 13-year-old boy in our church by his mother. And there's this combination of realism and lament and grief and hope that, it, that is so remarkable, and it becomes a go-to, this letter that, that she wrote that, that I have sitting under uh, that, that sign is a go-to for me whenever I feel discouraged. Because it, that letter reminds me of words that she said at her son's uh, visitation, where she said, it feels like I'm in a nightmare. Well, you are. This is a nightmare. She says, it feels like I'm in a nightmare and that I will wake up anytime. Well, ultimately, that will be true also, but right now, it's excruciatingly hard. And then on the one-year anniversary, she sends me this sign that says, all sad things come untrue, and the note that she included with it was filled with settled hope. that the sadness, and I quote, on this earth will only serve to intensify the joy of heaven. And she goes on to talk about how every day she wears a bracelet with the word, the Greek word, tetelestai, uh, which, which we get as a translation, these are, that's a word Jesus said on the cross, which means it is finished. The work is finished. Christ has overcome even this. And her note ended with these words, what comfort and what, what hope. You can't make this stuff up. You can't access this stuff without the living hope that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again to make all things new. But as David says in verse 9, those who fear the Lord, you know, those for whom the Lord and His promises and His person and work is the most weighty thing and and the thing of greatest focus. Those who fear the Lord have no lack. It's possible, in other words, like David, to be at the lowest point even in your life and still 
find in the reservoirs of grace and truth, somewhere in there, in, in, in the recesses of your soul, reasons for thanksgiving. Not because of the stuff that's going on, but because of who God is and what God is ultimately going to do with all of this. Expect trouble. But secondly, don't waste the trouble. What David saw and prayed, and, and the kinds of things that this mother that I just you know, told you about saw and continues to still see, what if I told you it was accessible to every single one of us? It's not just for the super saints who are uniquely otherworldly and spiritual. It's accessible to every kind of Christian. You know, David's message here is not, look how unique and special and otherworldly I am. In fact, next week's psalm, which is an imprecatory psalm, this is when you, when you get invited to pray against your enemies. I'll, I'll bet that'll be a fun one to talk about uh, together and how that, how that meshes with Jesus' words about loving our enemies. But in Psalm 70, this same David prays, I am poor and needy. He has no lofty, um, you know, special, unique dispensation of the Holy Spirit views about himself. He understands himself to be poor and needy for what only God can provide. And and, and so instead, what what he's doing in this prayer by sharing it is is sending out an all-accessible invitation for every saint and for every righteous person to give thanks. But what a righteous person? David also writes in another psalm, there's no such thing as a righteous person. And so what could this be about? Well, the Lord's Supper speaks to that. If you trust in Christ, it means you're clothed with his righteousness. And that's how God sees you on your best day and on your worst day. He goes on in verse 22 to say that the Lord redeems or another word for, for he buys back the life of his servants who take refuge in him, and none of them will be condemned. His servants can live fully in excruciatingly difficult places. Verse 5, again, those who look to the Lord are radiant. So whenever I read this verse, um, I pray through the Psalms a lot. That's Always my Bible reading includes at least one psalm uh, and then whatever else I'm reading. And whenever I come across this one, you know, where it says the faces of, of those who look to the Lord are radiant, I can't help but think of Moses when he came off the mountain after God gave him the Ten Commandments and it said the people of Israel saw that his, his face was shining. Having been with God, there was like this shine in the same way that the, the moon that has no light or heat in itself um, you know, gives off the, this beautiful light that, that is reflected off of it from the sun and all of its power, and all of its glory, and all of its shine, and radiance, and light, and heat. So it's, it's derived light, but it's light. In the same way that as Stephen the martyr was, was being, you know, his body was being killed. We're going to sing a mighty fortress to close the service today. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. And so Stephen, the first recorded martyr, uh, of Christianity in Acts chapter 6. It says that he looks up into heaven and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it says that as people looked at Stephen, his face was shining as if it were the face of an angel. Those who look to the Lord, their faces are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. And then he goes on in verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good to all who take refuge in him. But, but here's the ringer. 
This is a hard one, because remember how David has been betrayed by Saul and how he's being pursued and persecuted pretty much by everybody for being faithful. Slander narratives about him, aggressors going after him, hitmen put on him, living in caves. In verse 13, right in the middle of all these awful betrayals, He says, keep your tongue from evil. He's talking to himself. Keep your tongue from evil. Verse 14, turn away from evil and do good even in the face of this kind of treatment. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, Leah Moser and I did not plan today to have a congruent message when she was talking to us about confessing gossip. You know, people are trying to assassinate David's body. There's an easier American legal way to assassinate somebody by trying to assassinate their character, by reducing them to the very worst thing that you think about them and making that the definition of them. And, and who but David would have what, what would feel like a right to start tearing down King Saul, to tear down the king of Gath, to tear down everybody who's injuring him. Okay, back to my attorney friend in New York. When I said, let's go set the place on fire, I was teasing, but, but I, I felt like I was, I was wanting to enter in with some righteous anger to make him feel a little bit less alone. And he looks back at me with this serious look on his face, and he says, no retribution. No retribution because God's people forgive their enemies. And God's people love their enemies. God's people build things up. God's people don't tear things down. Hmm. So that was convicting. You want to have lunch after church? He's offering a portrait to me, and now to the rest of us, of what righteousness looks like. He's using his trouble chiefly as an instrument for his own formation into the likeness of the one who said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do, even as they were crucifying him. And who said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, so have no fear. Those who look to the Lord are radiant. Nietzsche put it this way. It's called common grace, you guys. God's truth is everywhere you look. Nietzsche said, whatever doesn't kill you is going to make you stronger. And that's precisely what has happened with David here. It's precisely what happened with Paul in Philippians 2. Remember that he writes from jail. Work out your salvation. Doesn't say work on or work for your salvation, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, exercise what you already have. We're talking about God's gymnasium for the soul, and, and, and in God's gymnasium for the soul, the workout equipment, the, the, the weight room is trouble. It's the trouble that we face in a fallen world and through things like opposition. 
strengthen the biceps that you already have. Like, you can either neglect them and ignore them and, and get nowhere with this gift of potential strength and greatness that God has put in you. You can either neglect them or you can, you can do what David Filson has done and become a beast. The dude bench presses 425 pounds. Suffering and trouble is the mechanism to, to do the same thing to the human soul, to, to, to make us more beatitude-like, more humble, more meek, more filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self, you know, and self-control. More capacity to say no retribution because God's people forgive those who hurt them. God's people are people of reconciliation. God's people build houses up. They don't tear houses down. They build people up. They don't tear people down. I mean, for goodness sakes, even as Judas is in the middle of betraying Jesus and selling him out for some coins, Jesus calls him friend. That's the last word that Jesus used to address Judas. It was friend before Judas perished. Work out your salvation. This is about resilient souls more than it is about anything else. Look for Jesus in the trouble or else we're hopeless to build that resilience without the resource of Jesus. Taste and see, he says, that the Lord is good. Blessed or happy is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. This is a discipline, right? So my wife will tell you I'm a fast eater. I'm done before she even takes her third bite, typically, right? Is that right? I eat very, very fast, and, and it has to be a discipline, especially when, when we get the, have the occasional nice meal, like, like, a, like I really like a, like a filet, right? So I don't eat a lot of it, but when I do, I have, to, I have to remind myself, do what your mom told you when you were a kid. 30 chews on the piece before you swallow it for a couple of reasons. One, that it digests well, uh, and you don't choke, but, but also you have to savor it while you've got it. That's what your relationship and mine is meant to be with the Word of the Lord. Savor it. We're, we're talking about something much more than a five-minute open the Bible, zip through a few things, check it off, move on with the really, you know, important motivating stuff. We're talking about seeing, savoring, stopping to be with Jesus. You'll, you and I will never be like Jesus except to the degree that we have been with him. And it's an invitation to everybody. Don't wolf down what is meant to be savored. Don't rush past it. Taste. See. And what does David see? It's right there in verse 15. What he sees more than anything else here in his trouble is that the Lord sees him. And hears him. The eyes of the Lord, he says, are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. What David is doing is demonstrating how his own nose has been in the Bible. And, and in trouble, that's when the Bible tends to come home to God's people. When you do the mundane, ordinary, sometimes boring thing 
of plotting through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, for example, and you think, what's the point of this? The point is that when you need it, it will come home to you. There's something that the Holy Spirit does to activate the stuff that you've crammed into your soul over and over and over again and put on repeat and replay over and over and over again from the truth, from the gospel, which is called the power, the dynamite of God. You want to be a powerful person? You want to have the dynamite of God, uh, you know, detonated out of your soul on a regular basis, and especially in times of crisis. If you want to avoid hell and the grumbling mood that leads to it, Again, as Filson says, get into the Bible so the Bible gets into you. When the Bible gets into you, Christ gets into you, the Holy Spirit gets into you, power gets into you. And it comes home to you in times of trouble. No doubt David had memorized Genesis 50, verse 20, when Joseph had been betrayed, sold into slavery, imprisoned on a, on a, on a false charge of, a sexu- of, of sexual assault by a woman who propositioned him. And then he's tossed into prison, and, and he becomes the most life-giving, bloom-where-you're-planted person ever by becoming this, this kind of prisoner that gets the attention of the king, no less, or of the, the, the Egyptian pharaoh, no less, for being such an awesome prisoner and such a giver from, from, a, from an unjust, ugly, violent place. There, there's still a beauty to his soul. Then he gets eventually pr- promoted to the prime minister of Egypt. And then the day of reckoning comes when the, the brothers who sold him into slavery are now faced with him, dependent on him, needy for his grace, and his response to them? No retribution. God's people forgive. They don't retaliate. No retribution. He says, what you intended for evil... I'm going to name it for what it is. I'm not going to codependently gloss over the fact that you actually did great harm to me. What you, you did great evil to me, but what you intended for evil? God performed some judo on this, world-class black belt judo. God turned it into good. It's what he does. You know, I, I, I once had a cat. Um... I don't like cats, by the way. I think they're passive-aggressive. They think they're better than you are. I'm a dog person through and through, and I'm in this constant debate with one of our daughters about that. She's a big cat person. It's a family conflict. But I think one of the reasons why I think so poorly of cats is that this cat had fleas, and the fleas infested the apartment that the two of us lived in. This is back in my post-college single-guy days. And I was itching all the time, and I saw no good in it, until I read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. And you may be familiar if you've read that book or if you saw the play uh, at the, the theater uh, over at CPA recently. Um, Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy are detained at the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz uh, for uh, providing refuge for Jews for, as Christians. And they, they were brought in and, you know, facing death, and Betsy eventually died at that camp. But there's this scene there where, where Corey is all upset because there, there are these fleas in the, in the tiny little cabin that, 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 that the two of them and all the others are crammed into. She's oh, these fleas are terrible. And, and Betsy's like, oh, don't you just want to thank God for the fleas? 
Corey's like, what? And she says, well, you know that, that it's because of the fleas that the Nazi soldiers don't come into our cabin. They don't want to come in here because of the fleas. Imagine what could happen to us if the Nazi soldiers wanted to come into our cabin anytime they wanted to. You know, it's all about perspective. You know, one person's cynicism is another person's worship. It's all about the state of the soul. Perspective is everything. Tasting and seeing the Lord's goodness even in violent, infested places. It's otherworldly, Holy Spirit, power of the gospel stuff. It can't be manufactured. You know, some years ago, I, I conducted the funeral for a 35-year-old man named Brian in St. Louis, Missouri. At the time, it was, it, 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 the funeral was held at the church that my predecessor here, Wilson Benton, was the pastor, called Kirk of the Hills Presbyterian Church. And so I did the funeral, uh, but leading up to the funeral, I, I had several pastoral visits with Brian, and he, just, he struck me as the most joyful person in my life at the time. And I, I said, you, you've got to tell me... Um, what is it that gives you this joy when you, you know, you've got two young kids, you've got a wife who's soon going to be a widow because of this cancer that you've got, you're 35 years old, you'll never get to live the dreams that you always had. What's your secret? And he said, well, along the way, you know, I've been reading Philippians a lot, you know, and along the way, I learned to thank God for the good that I cannot see. You're only able to do that when you understand the character of God and the, big, and the integrity of God in the big picture of everything. And you, you can only really understand that on a visceral level when you understand that Jesus went first. You know, verse 20 talks about, you know, it says, He keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. So this, this becomes, this is referred back to in John's gospel centuries later. When it says that, you know, they, they jammed uh, Jesus with spears, they put nails through his hands and feet, and yet not one of his bones were broken. And it, it, it points back to this psalm. And so this is prophecy. Every psalm is a messianic psalm. Every psalm is about Jesus ultimately. This was Jesus' prayer book, but it was also his biography. None of his bones were broken, but we did break the rest of him body and soul, we broke him. The whole world has, has kept a jealous eye on the king of kings because we want his power, we want his resources, we want his stuff, but we don't want his face. We don't want his direction or his lordship. And his response on the cross, no retribution. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And ever since, what Jesus has been doing is He's been setting a table for his people where he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup a little bit slower than you usually do today. Don't do it forever because we're going to have other people that we need to serve as well and we want to, you know, respect everybody's time. But maybe an extra two or three seconds, just keep the bread and, and, and keep the the. the the wine or the juice on your tongue to savor it. Don't rush past it. Don't wolf it down. And see if maybe God doesn't just nourish your body, but also your soul.
Because one of these days you're going to need it all to come home to you. Get it into you. Get it into you by getting into it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the perspective that also comes with a promise that cynicism is never necessary. Grief and lament and sorrow and righteous anger are, are, are certainly sometimes necessary, but cynicism and despair are not. Because ultimately, you take every trouble that we face and you take every trouble that we cause and you do judo on it and you turn it into good and for your glory. And so, Father, as we approach your table now, would you give us the grace to taste and see these truths even as we taste and see the elements in front of us? Take this bread, take this cup, nourish our bodies, nourish our souls with the promises and the future hope that they represent to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as the servers are making uh, their way to the tables and also the row releasers to the rows, which I invite you to do now, it's my privilege to remind us all that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a table that is here only for righteous people. But remember, the righteous person is the person who acknowledges, I am unrighteous. Uh, I am in need of what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes to me outside of myself from another place, namely from Jesus, who lived a life that we could never live, a life of moral and ethical perfection, and he clothes us with that, and who also died the death and, 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 and paid the punishment that our sins deserve. And so all that's left is love, belonging, adoption, intimacy uh, with God. And so we're going to eat and we're going to drink to that.